Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we are back another Monday, a somber Monday. It is 9-11 after all. Um, if you guys want to hear us go into great detail on where we were and the things we experienced on 9-11, please go back to last year's episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast featuring Jeff, myself, and Henry Sledge, where we all describe where we were and what we were doing on 9-11. And, um, you know, thoughts to all the family members, all those who had family members who perished on that day. And uh, wanted to get that out of the way. But joining us, as always, live from Texas, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you doing tonight, sir? Great. Looking forward to this episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it as well. I know the audience is. And, um, you know, we took, I don't know, we're off. Well, we had a best of episode and then we had a holiday. And so it's been, it's been a bit, but we're back. And we have a very special guest. We're very excited to talk tonight. He's from the World War II Foundation, Mr. Tim Gray. Tim, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well. What'd you guys do with Henry? Um, you know, that's a question we haven't really discussed too much, but, uh, we'll get into a little bit. Henry is last, I talked to him two days ago. He was over in England for the, we have ways, uh, festival, but he's, yeah. but more importantly, he, um, he's in the middle of working on a book. He's on the second draft. He's taken the unpublished works of his father's book, a helmet for, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> with the old breed. The old breed. Yeah. Because I believe the original manuscript, didn't he say, Jeff, it was like close to, five to six hundred pages but the, pub- yeah, the at least yeah. and the publisher had a very they had like we want to be exactly 315.2 they had an exact number of how many pages and so he has all yeah. this unpublished book out there and so he's taking that unpublished book but then he's adding his you know take yeah. onto it and we're very excited but he's kind of you know as we all are we're all work. We all have families. And so with the work, the family, the trip to England and working on this book, he's, he's kind of on hiatus. He's still part of the family. He's just, he's putting a lot of focus in that book and Jeff and I are supporting him with that. Um, he yep. should be back here shortly to give an update, but we, um, I'm very- he's a great guy. He's a great guy. I want to, I want to add that, that Henry is just a tremendous individual. I've talked with him in the past and he told me he was working on extending with the old breed. And I thought it was such a great idea. I mean, it's such an amazing book, along with Leckie's books and everything else, that um, that's going to be a home run. Well, for guys like us, it would be like, we were talking before the show, you're a big fan of the 80s. It would be like if Disney never bought the Star Wars franchise, and then George Lucas came out, or the son of George Lucas came out and said, hey, I got this 500 pages of never-seen Star Wars stuff, I'm going to yeah. publish it. For for World War II aficionados and Pacific guys like us, we're like... Please, please, where's this been? Let's get it out there. So yeah. we are yeah. very, um, very excited for Henry, and we're definitely waiting for that to, uh, you know, we're still early on, but that's where he's been. Yeah. Good. Tell him I said hello. Will do. Tim, give us a little background on you. How did you, well, I guess there's two or three realms. A, what got you into World War II, and B, what got you into document documentary filming and the creation of the World War II Foundation? Um, I was a television sportscaster for about 15 years around the country, and one of my stops was in Fort Myers, believe it or not. And uh, so I was the uh, the sports director for a few years at the CBS station in Fort Myers, Over where I wink? know you live. 
at Wink. Yeah, I was the sports director there from 92 to 94. So I, I worked down there on Palm Beach Boulevard, and um, that was one of many stops I made as a TV sportscaster. I left there to go to Orlando to cover Shaquille O'Neal and, and the Magic back in their heyday. And then, um, so I was on, you know, in TV for 15 years, and then at the end of 15 years, my shelf life was up. And I think, yep. you know, it just comes to a point where you're like, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's do something else. And I've always been totally fascinated. And since I was probably six years old, reading about the personal stories of World War II and traveling and things like that. So one day I looked at my wife and I'm like, I want to make documentaries about World War II. And, you know, when you have five kids and you want to go off and do something like that, you kind of get that look like, Okay, how's that? How's that going to pay the bills? And um, so we started in 2006 with our first film, and right now we're working on our 35th. And they all air nationally on American Public Television, PBS, and they're all narrated by celebrities. We've got Kevin Bacon, um, we've got Jeff Daniels, Jim Nance from CBS Sports does a lot of our films. Gary Sinise, we've had Leah Schreiber, Darius Rucker, Luke Bryan. Um, so. Um, we, we do these films, but, but the thing that makes them a little different is that we shoot them all on location. So if we're going to do a film on Guadalcanal, we go to Guadalcanal. If we're going to do a film on Auschwitz, we go to Auschwitz. If we're going to do one on Peleliu, we go to Peleliu. Iwo Jima, same thing. So every film that we shoot, we shoot on location uh, in Europe or the Pacific where the story played out. And you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I know you guys delve into the Pacific a lot, but when you go back there, you know, this year we were on Guam, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and just the remnants of the battles that went on there and, and to see those, um, you know, still there. Um, Peleliu is considered um, the most well-preserved battlefield in the world because it's illegal to take anything off the island. So, you know, there were 500 caves on Peleliu that the Japanese had so you go into those caves and there are samurai swords, there are radios, there are Coke bottles, there are helmets, there are guns, there are all these things. It's like the battle, you know, ended in the fall of 1944 and everybody just dropped everything and it's all still there, um, which That's is why I think it was such a such a difficult battle and tragic fight that three parts of the Pacific series were devoted to just Peleliu. Um, real, and I was quick, watching, real quick, real yeah, um, quick. That has to be hard as a historian and a military buff to go there. You're on Peleliu. It's kind of like, holy hell, I'm on Peleliu. It's awesome that they're protecting the artifacts, but then there's part of you like, that thing's just rusting away. It'll be gone. And then, yeah. I mean, it's got to be hard to, I mean, it obviously is. they've gone through, they've, they have enough of it behind glass in the museums, but you're, as a collector and as a historian, you're just like, you're literally watching history fade away. But you're yeah. supposed to be down for it because that's its resting place. That's where it was dropped, as you as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, there, there. It's you know, Peleliu is kind of a cemetery today. There's still a lot of missing Japanese and some missing Americans there too. Um, but it is it is difficult for somebody who runs a museum. You want people to see these artifacts. Um, but but you know, I totally understand why they're doing it, um, and totally understand and 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 um, you know, agree with them. Um, that these artifacts should be kept on that island because they want to build a museum on their own island. So sure. when tourists go there, and they do get tourists who go there, it's one of the top diving locations in the world, um, that they should be able to display those artifacts in their own museum. And I know there's an effort on going there to build their own museum there, but uh, besides Auschwitz, 
Peleliu is probably the most haunting location I think I've ever been. Um, so, you know, you go to these places and they each offer their own unique part of the war. I mean, Europe, for the most part, has been cleaned up. You know, it's been tidied up. Things have been swept up and you'll still run across bunkers and things like that throughout Europe and stuff. But when you go in the jungles of the Pacific, there are Japanese planes that are crashed there. There are tanks that are rusted out, Amtraks. There are machine gun positions. Peleliu is an island is like two miles wide by seven miles long. And there's a British company there that's in charge of removing all the live ordnance on the island. In 10 years, they've removed 60,000 pieces mm. of live ordnance from the island of Peleliu, and they're still not done. So if you wander off the path in Peleliu, you're probably going to be FedExed home in a, in a, small, in a small bag uh, or a FedEx pack because there's going to be nothing left of you. It's still a dangerous place. Um, and that kind of adds to the, the ambiance of the horrific fight that went on there. So going to these places really opens your eyes, especially in the Pacific. And I know, you know, Henry knows all about that and everything. Um, it's still wild out there. There's so much that remains from the war. So it gives you a good feel for, you know, some of the stories that you're trying to tell. Going back to your start a little bit. Um, Obviously, working in TV definitely probably helped you when it came to visualizing what you want in your documentary, a particular project to be, let alone the, the video editing and the storyboarding. Could you imagine, I guess, do you think it would have been a, a different path or a harder path if you would have went down that same road without all your experience in working on television? I couldn't have done it because, I mean, you know, when you do TV for 15 years, um, you're used to writing, you're used to video production, you're used to telling stories, you're used to deadlines, you're used to all these things. So it was the perfect training ground for being able to take in TV, you get about a minute in 30 seconds to tell a story. So now we've expanded that out to an hour to an hour and a half, but it's everything. It's interviewing techniques, it's research, it's everything else. So no, I, I could not have done one without the other. So it, it, it definitely was a great training ground. And, and all through those years, I was still reading World War II. I was still watching documentaries. I was still watching all the films. So I was still, while I'm covering Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or whoever else you're covering at the time, you know, given the choice of going to a NFL game or watching Torah, Torah, Torah on TV, <laughs> you know, I was like, I think I might want to stay home and watch Torah, 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 which kind of gave me a glimpse of where my, my future would be. So um, it was fun, but this is much more rewarding. Just because you brought him up and I've never had the opportunity to talk about Shaq on this show. Mm -hmm. Let me just you like to see the issue. Please. Here we go. <laughs> size 15? That's his size 22 sneaker that he was wearing with the Magic back in 1995. I just want to say this about Shaq. Um, what you hear about Shaq being the nicest guy in the world is absolutely true. It is. He's a big kid. I worked for Beasley Broadcasting for about eight years, and during that time, uh, Gentry Thomas, the producer at the time of the Zito and Garrett show, he was launching a, a thing this is actually before podcasting became what it is today he was working on a streaming radio station and he went over to miami because he he had some connections to sports radio producers and he went to have a business meeting with Shaq. he wanted yeah. to see if Shaq was interested in getting involved in this project and so he goes to Shaq's house and he sits down pulls out his laptop and his wallpaper on his laptops are his kids and he starts his presentation Shaq's hold, hold on a minute he said where are your kids at 
Ginger's like, back at home at my parents' house. And no lie, Jeff, Shaq looked at him and said, don't you ever put your kids off to have a meeting with me. If we go into business, anytime we're together, don't matter if we're traveling, you're here, bring your kids. Kids are number yeah. one. And yeah. there's so many photos that Gentry has of him standing off the side of the Tonight Show, whatever, there's his kids. So when you see Shaq on these commercials, TV shows, whatever, that's him. That's not some, that's that's not no. some marketing made up. That is 100% Shaq. He is the nicest guy, most family-oriented dude you will ever meet. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean, those were the heyday of the magic when I, that was my beat. So I had to cover the team, you know, a lot of the times, home games, away games, playoffs, things like that. So I got to know a bunch of the guys and he was always one of those guys where, you know, he was always in a happy mood. You know, he was always good with reporters. He was just a big kid. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't. I went to his house in Orlando and it was filled with like video games and stuff. You know, he's got like video games all over his house, like, you know, Atari and, and all these other things. And, you know, he, he was living La Vida Loca. I mean, he, he enjoyed life, but you were exactly right. What you see is what you get. And, um, you know, he's does a lot of things that people don't know about um, that, you know, to, to help people out and things like that. So I got to witness all that. So he, he was one of the, probably one of the more um, favorite people I've ever had the chance to spend time with. And, you know, he, um, he got me involved in some charity boxing event that he had down in Orlando and I had to fight some radio guy. who was twice my size. (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? And that guy, the other radio guy just pummeled me, you know, (laughs) and Shaq's just laughing and I'm like, yeah, okay, but you're right. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah, the radio guy is probably 300 pounds heavier and high cholesterol, but still had the, yeah. the cigarette power on you. Yeah, you know, what's, it was funny because the first time I ever ran into Shaq, and I know we, we want to talk about World War II, but I, I saw him at Magic Practice, and, that, and I'm like, he's playing point guard. Here's a seven foot one, 355-pound muscular guy who's bringing the ball up the court like a point guard would. And I'm just like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah. And what an athlete for that size. Now you you've you were explaining some of the locations because obviously as you stated earlier when you do your documentaries you're not just doing on a sound stage and cutting some B roll and maybe sending some local news crew over there to to get you some B roll you you go on site you you get all the footage yourself is there particular areas in the world particular battlefields where you found it more difficult to get the permits required to film there or is there a particular maybe battlefield you wanted to do a documentary on or a certain battle that you wanted to do a feature on but you couldn't because it was too hard to get those permits or get access to those areas no you know we've run into a couple of times where we've been over in like the philippines and there's been like unrest going on in the area so, you know, there is a good chance you're going to be shaken down by about nine guys in the back of a pickup truck who, uh. who, know, who know you have a camera and a camera crew and they'll pull up. And that, that's when you have what's called a fixer with you. And the fixer is a local guy who lives in the area who, who speaks the language and can say, hey, you know, these guys are fine. Leave them alone. And then the, the truck will go on and, and, and harass somebody, somebody else. But there have been some areas where, you know, there's been civil unrest and we spent a night on an island uh, in uh, near Benica off of Guadalcanal where, you know, generation or two earlier, you know, grandpa was a cannibal, you yeah. know, or, or great grandpa was a cannibal. So you're like sleeping with one, one eye open, hoping they're not taking out the barbecue sauce or anything and licking yeah. their chops when they see you. But, but everybody's been really kind. I mean, there really hasn't been a situation where we've been told, you know, you, you can't be here. 
Um, and if there is a situation that ever arises in, in a country that maybe is a little unsecure, the local people will always help you because they know you're, you're trying to tell a story that, you know, may help with their tourism or, or, or whatever or help preserve their history. Things are changing a lot in the Pacific now because of the China situation. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see in places like Peleliu, you're starting to see that which was used, you know, in 1944 and 1945, you're starting to see the Marines come in now and they're widening that runway and, and American aircraft are going to be using this World War II runway again because now it's become a chess match in the Pacific. And all of a sudden, these old World War II runways are being brought back because of what's going on in the Pacific. So, you know, history kind of repeats itself in some ways where all of a sudden the runways like they were in World War II were so important and, and, and the CBs coming in and building these bases in the Pacific were so important. Now these bases are being used again and being, and being revitalized because of a current situation going on in the world. So, you know, we've, we've been fortunate um, that we've, we pretty much have been welcomed wherever we've gone and whatever problems we've had have been, have been minor. So haven't prevented us from from doing our job or getting our footage or interviews or anything like that. But, you know, Peleliu to me is, is a real interesting place because um, we've been there a few times now. Um, and then, you know, Auschwitz was the other place, two, two different places, but both very uneasy feelings when you go to film in these locations for obvious reasons um, because of the horror of Peleliu and the fight that went on there and was really an unnecessary battle. Um, you know, and then Auschwitz, which was a death camp killing 10,000 people a day at Auschwitz-Birkenau. So you come into situations sometimes where you get a feeling like, man, you know, you can still feel the the the, the negative vibes. You can still feel the, the ghosts who were in those areas and the people who suffered in those areas. And on Peleliu, it was because of the terrain at Auschwitz. It was because of the, the SS and the Nazis and, and that whole plan. Um, so... It's, it's interesting. Every place has its own feel. We just got back from uh, Florence, Italy. We did a film on Bob Dole. So we went back to the place where Dole was wounded in the Apennine, northern Apennine Mountains. And we went right to the location where Bob Dole was wounded. And that was that was an amazing trip to go up and see where he was wounded and how that affected the rest of his life and, yeah. you know, defined who he was as a, as a politician and a person. So when it comes to the realm of World War II documentaries as not even much further now, but as time has come on and we're losing more and more veterans, how is that um, dynamic going to change when it comes to producing these documentaries? Because obviously everybody loves to have the vet interviews and yes, we can pull some old footage, but after so many of those have done, everybody's going to have already seen that content. So how do you foresee that realm changing on um, when it actually comes to producing the documentaries? We started in 2006 and we knew our window was closing. So what we started to do was mass interviews with veterans. We'd sit down with, uh, with 50 veterans, survivors, witnesses at a time. And it could be somebody who grew up in London who witnessed the Blitz. It could be a schoolgirl in Germany who watched the soldiers come into her school every day and made them do 11 Heil Hitlers before the school day started. Mm -hmm. So we knew in 2006. So I'd say, you know, of the over 1,000 interviews we have with veterans, I'd say 70% of those haven't seen the light of day yet. Nice. And most of those men, women have passed on. 
So we started to build up an archive knowing we wanted to do this long term. So, you know, we have enough interviews right now that if we're doing a film on the bulge, we can go to our archive and pull up six or seven bulge veterans. If we want to do a film on Peleliu, another film or something, we can do the same thing there. Same for almost every battle situation in World War II. We have a deep archive of interviews that we can pull from. And, um, you know, even home stuff, you know, women in war, Rosie yeah. the Riveters, um, CBs, guys who flew the hump in, in, in the CBI, things like that. So I think we knew early on that their memories and their ability to tell their stories were going to be condensed into about a 10-year window when we started this, maybe 15. And that's how we've done it. So we have so many interviews who and amazing stories that haven't seen the light of day yet that you know, with funding, we could do this for another 20 years. And I think there's always going to be an interest in World War II. Absolutely. When you go to Bar when you go to Barnes and Noble, there's a new World War II book out every day or every week or, you know, 10 books out every week by, you know, Marcus Brotherton or Adam Makos or John McManus or Alex Kershaw or somebody is writing a, an awesome book about World War II. And then it's the same with movies. It's the same in television. It's 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 now phase three of the Band of Brothers series with yep. with, with you know with the, the them coming out with Masters of the Air next year. So there's something about that time period that I believe no matter when the last veteran dies, that people are still going to look back on that time period and have an interest in it because you know, we're talking about 9-11 today. It was a time when the country came together and, you know, it was not Republicans. It wasn't Democrats. It was Americans. And it's really unfortunate when you think about it, that it takes something like that to bring our country together, uh, December 7th or 9-11, uh, where everybody puts all the other BS aside and says, wow, you know, what's best for America? Well, what's best for America is you got to win the war in World War II, What's best for America is you got to go find Osama bin Laden and you got to stop, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan and things like that. But it, it, it takes uh, an extreme moment like mm -hmm. that to bring us together, um, which is unfortunate. But it also shows you on the other side that the potential is there for Americans to come together for the greater good. Let's just not have it being America attacked for us to get to that point. So today is apropos because it is 9-11 and, and people were so surprised about 9-11. And, and, you know, as a historian, a World War II historian, I would just say, look at December 7th, 1941. We weren't expecting it. The intelligence wasn't there. We were attacked by the air, you know, casting blame on husband Kimmel and General Walter Short in Oahu. They weren't getting all the information from Washington. They should have been getting 2001. Same thing happens. America lets its guard down and all of a sudden we get attacked again. And, you know, history rhymes. Yeah. Jeff, you have so, any questions? Yeah, I'm so uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Tim, for a number of reasons, because my first question you already answered, and that is, is there sustainability in this topic when it comes to film? Um, you know, people are still reading books about Lincoln and Kennedy. Um, so I understand from that perspective, but film is, an, as you know, it's a very important medium. It's, it definitely is a, a, a better way, I think, to reach the younger generations, exactly. uh, forget, forget cracking a book. Um, so I've always been worried and anybody who's been in any kind of film industry in any 
way, shape, or form that we've had on our podcast, and we've had several authors as well that I've asked the same question to, is there a horizon to this where uh, this is this is it, it's run its course? And I feel like you have certainly uh, answered that question for me. The other thing, uh, more of a thought to ponder, but uh, telling so I'm a high school teacher, that's my day job because podcasting doesn't, you know, do it. <laughs> um, no, I love teaching. Um, so telling my students, today, we talked, we had a little moment of silence. Yeah. And this is my third year teaching. And I told my kids today, I said, you know, it dawned on me last year. I will never have a student that was alive during mm-hmm. September 11th. Mm-hmm. So why should you care? Mm. Why, is this any different than the Jamestown colony for you? Probably not. Mm. And at first, going into it last year, it had a little preparedness. At first, I was thinking, you know, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy for you that you didn't witness something like that firsthand, right? Um, yeah. I, you know, I was in basic training when it happened. My wife was still in high school. She was my high school sweetheart at the time, of course. And she talked about watching it on the news in the homeroom and how it made her feel and you know, all those things. So, um, you know, I'm happy. I'm glad you didn't have to experience that. But then thinking, pondering for this year, I started feeling the opposite. I almost felt bad for some of these students because I have handed a test back to a student, you know, sorry, you missed two. Oh, that's racist. Okay. You know, we're racist. We're, we're united or not. We're, we're disunited. We're, we're political. We're everything that an immature teenager can ponder up and, and, you know, ostracize our country um now i feel bad for them because i told them today the country that you that you want apparently i saw that the afternoon of september 11 2001 trust me it's there and you should be proud to be an american uh and again you took the words out of my mouth sir when you said it shouldn't take a december 7th a september 11th there's some fickleness i guess in human nature Mm. that happens all the time man i wish i had talked to grandpa before he passed away I don't know why it takes until it's too late for us to learn our lessons, but I guess that's just the nature of it. But um, it's it's uh, it, it just gives you a good feeling to know that there's people like you out there doing what you do and giving us the confidence that we don't see the end on the horizon for this subject matter in all meaning. Now, I think a lot of it has to do with um, people yearn for a time when America came together for a common cause. So World War II was not like Korea or Vietnam or even, you know, some of the other conflicts we've had over the years that people weren't totally clear about. World War II was guys who were wearing black hats, guys who were wearing white hats. We knew who the enemy was. Um, We could tell them by their uniforms. We could tell them by their helmets. We could tell them, you know, certain ways. So people yearn for a time. And that's why World War II, I think, will always be part of, um, you know, the the learning curve of of the, the potential is there. But they always look for how did that team come together? And that team came together because they were doing what was best for America. But Again, it was a real clear war. You know, it wasn't so clear for America on December 6th, but it was certain clear on December 7th, 1941. 
but people look for clarity in their lives. They want to know why things happen. Did it happen for the right reason? Did it happen for the wrong reason? So they, they look at, you know, they look at that generation and how they came together. Young boys who were um, teenagers who helped save the world. They look at the young the women who went from cooking dinner to making tanks and planes. And so the potential of the greatness of America was, was never more on display than I think during that time period, at least in America from 1941 to 1945, the world war had already been going on for two years. I mean, you know, great Britain had been carrying the burden um, pretty much throughout uh, after most of Europe surrendered. So I think we look for things in our lives that have clarity and that to me is probably the most important part of the history of the world that still resonates today. All right. Everything we are today is because of what happened during World War II, the opportunities we have, uh, everything else. You know, the fact we don't have to show papers when we go from North Dakota to South Dakota, um, whatever you want to say. So I just look at the clarity of that time and the potential and how these men who were young boys came home and were so humble. And if anyone deserved to wear a t-shirt that said, I saved the world, you know, get my autograph. That's not what they did. They didn't talk about it. And now we have these reality television shows where everybody wants to be famous for yep. doing nothing. So it's like, why, why are you famous? Okay. Well, I've got a 98 year old guy here who was a Higgins boat coxswain on D-Day. He brought ashore the first infantry division. He was shot. All the guys on his um, Higgins boat were killed. He's a hero. You know, you're a social media influencer. And, and those two things for me don't add up. You know, um, if anyone deserves to gloat, it's that generation and they don't and they don't at all. And most of their families don't know what they what dad did in the war, what grandpa did in the war and what they did was save the world. But they came home and, you know, went on with their lives and raised families and, and didn't talk about it. And uh, I'm just amazed uh, about regarding the humbleness of that generation and the things that we can still learn about, you know, being called on to, to support your country, but doing it in a way that is, 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 is uh, you're, you're very humble in, in, in how you do it. Um, so I look at that generation and they've taught me more about just living a good life than, than any other, you know, group I've interacted with. My, my wife says, you know, why are all your friends 99 years old? And I said, good because I, can, <laughs> you know, I want them to rub off on me. I want what they did to rub off on me to make me a better human being and a better American and more have more empathy and, and all these other things that, um, that, that we all need to have. So I think their lessons still resonate today and will always resonate. I wonder if a Absolutely. lot of the... I wonder if a lot of the not talk about it braggart thing came from the fact that not everyone was practicing, but in our civilization, religion played a huge part, whether you were active or not, or, you know, everybody knew that the, the teachings and one of the teachings is being humble, not being a braggart. It's take care of your family, take care of your friends, take care of community, not sit up on your soapbox saying, here's all the things I did, which, by the way, everybody else in my neighborhood did it. I wonder if that had a, a part to compare to nowadays where it's just, you know, the uh, – I've completely gone blank on the word. It's thrown around all the time. But all oh, the narcissists are, are running the are running the coop right now, and it's just look at yeah. me, look at me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's – um... 
you know, it's it's all directed. And in, in, in a lot of ways, that's how we teach World War II to, to the younger generation now is that we have to relate it back to them. Mm-hmm. So if I have a 14-year-old who comes to our museum, I tell him a story about a film that we did on a 14-year-old who joined the 82nd Airborne when he was 14 and jumped into Sicily when he was 15 and, you know, ended up getting kicked out of the Army and then got kicked out of the Navy and then joined the Merchant Marine. Then he fought at Chosen Reservoir. Then he did two tours in Vietnam as a Sergeant Major of Special Forces. And the kid's mouth just drops because what you need to do to teach, and you're a teacher, you need to, with this generation especially, you need to relate it to them. You just can't talk over their heads. So you have to relate it. If we have a bunch of 17-year-olds in, I tell them stories about 17-year-olds who landed on EWO or lied about their age, um, things like that. So in order to teach, you need to engage. And the way you engage is to try and bring that student in by relating it to something they can relate to at their own age. And... Um, and I think, you know, that's why, you know, history books, have, they've gotten away from history books and, and students are learning so much you know, visually these days. But but they also want to know about World War II in the context of what people their age were doing. And I find that fascinating because once you get their attention and you tell them about, hey, did you know about Calvin Graham? He was 12 years old and he joined the Navy and he was the youngest American to serve in World War II. And they're like, 12 years old, he joined the Navy and he took part in the Battle of Guadalcanal and he was awarded medals. Um, and then they threw him in the brig because his mom ratted him out that he was 12 years old. So when you're educating a 12 year old, you have to talk about Calvin Graham and you have to you have to hit that ball back to them. You know, it's like a game of tennis. Okay. Here's what I'm telling you. It's your turn to hit it back to me now on what you think about Calvin Graham and what you think about, you know, what you're capable of in your own life. If someone your age, you know, took part in the battle of Guadalcanal at 12 years old. You make a great point there because that's exactly the stance that I've had to take in the museum field for years now is making it. And of course now in the classroom, making it relevant. So, you know, I know when I was a kid watching World War II documentaries, I remember these men were probably late 60s and early 70s, right? You know, they're, oh, you know, we were just kids back then, you know. And, of course, when you're a kid, everybody's old, right? So your vision of these guys and this black and white footage and, and Robert Morgan climbing out of the Memphis Bell, these are yeah. these, these are men. And it took a little while. I turned 21 in Baghdad to go, <laughs> Well, we were just kids. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's not that not everybody looks like John Bassalone that is at every island in all Europe. Uh, it was these pimply faced kids that, yeah. you know, some of them never even kissed a girl that mm-hmm. didn't even finish school. And the, the gates dropping on this LCVP and they're running on some island. They don't even know where the heck it is or how to say it. And they're saving the world. Yeah. And I think you know that does play into probably some of their humility there because I don't think they could understand or even comprehend at that time just how impactful hitting that beach was. Mm-hmm. I don't think who I mean, if you said Paleo to somebody in the fall of forty four, what the heck does that mean? What are we Bless doing you. here? Who cares? Right? Yeah, no, it's true. It's 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 really true. And um you know, I think, you know, edu- educating that, that new generation, um, you know, about that. Most of them, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, why did they fight? Why did they fight? Did they fight for the flag? Did they fight for democracy? Did they, you know, why did they fight? And I, and I said, well, they fought because 
They wanted to help the guy next to him. They fought for their buddy. So if they saw their buddy's head blown off and their buddy was three feet away from them, you know, they're not going to come home and gloat because they know they're a survivor. You know, the, it's just a, it's just the luck of the draw that, you know, Joe three, three feet away from me was killed and I wasn't. So a lot of them came home and didn't go on and gloat about what they did and everything else because they knew the randomness of war. And that's why young people fight in wars, because young people are feel invincible and it's always going to be somebody else who's going to be killed. It's not going to be me. Um, so that's why young people fight in wars. And, you know, I, I always found that interesting. You know, once once somebody um, we've interviewed, all the veterans we've ever interviewed, World War Two veterans are all against war. And those are the guys who fought. And they're all for diplomacy and they're they're for exhausting every opportunity of diplomacy, you know, after they've fought in Pacific or Europe and they've seen the carnage and they've inflicted the carnage and they've had to deal with the carnage mentally when they came home and everything. And those are the guys who seem to be most against war. And I, I always found that interesting that these hardened veterans who fought or landed on Iwo or Peleliu or Tarawa or, you know, um, Sicily or Italy or whatever, they're all pretty anti-war once you've been in it. You know, they're not gung-ho John Wayne guys. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the island and I'm going to take it by myself. You know, I mean, they're not like that. They, they're they like explore diplomacy. Don't lead us down this path again. And I always found that interesting. You always go going in saying, you know, wow, these guys are and they're always like, I fought for the guy in the foxhole next to me. And I asked one guy who was a Jewish B-17 pilot. I said, describe the mood at that time. And he said, I'm going to help you, but I, but I also know that you're going to help me. And together we're going to get the job done. That was the mood of most soldiers, airmen, Marines, Navy you know, I'm going to help you, but I also know I can count on you helping me and together we're going to get the job done. And I think that summarized World War II more than waving any flags or, you know, preserving democracy, running ashore at Omaha Beach with a guy with an M1 Grand saying, I'm here to preserve democracy. Yeah. No, I'm here not to get shot. And I'm here to make sure my, my buddy who I've been training with for two years doesn't get killed either. And I think that doesn't change in any war or any conflict. That is, I think that's the same in any war or conflict. You're fighting for the guy next to you. Well put. I was just, yeah. I was just. Thinking. I've never, I've never been in combat. I've never been in the military. And someone could say, well, that's wrong. But I'm just going based on what I've talked to of of World War II veterans, and not one of them said I'm fighting for the flag, or not one of them, or very few have said I'm fighting for democracy in France. I'm fighting to preserve democracy in France. 98% of them will say, I'm fighting for my buddy. I'm, I'm trying to keep my buddy alive. I'm trying to keep me alive, but I'm fighting for the guy next to me. And I know he's going to help me and I'm going to help him. And together we're going to get through this. So I, I always find that interesting. Well, to that end, I've never heard Jeff utter the phrase hearts and minds. So I think, uh, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jeff. Poor Jeff. But, you know, it's it's interesting with kids these days. And, and, and Jeff said it earlier. I mean, it, it, there's a whole new way to teach them. And um, we have a museum in Rhode Island that really, you know, when you get the students in there, 
they're fascinated by World War II because they can see the uniforms, the helmets, the guns, they can see the flags, they can see a lot of things that they don't see in the history books. And we've had 4,000 kids through our museum, and we've not had one kid who's been disinterested in what we have in the museum, you know, been on their phone or anything like that. Once you, once you Hook expand them. their horizons and introduce them to it, which they're really not doing in schools anymore. No. They'll take an interest. Tell me more about Pearl Harbor. Tell me more about June 6, 1944. Tell me more about the atomic bombs and why they were dropped. You start to get these questions, and their teachers are even amazed because they haven't taught us taught this to the kids in school. So history is always the first thing that get, gets cut in public schools. History, and then they start to look at the arts, and then they start to look at sports and everything. But for some reason in America, and it's not the case in Europe, but for mm-hmm. some reason in America, history always seems to get the first axe. And, and that's unfortunate because you can learn so much from history to prevent another Holocaust or another genocide or, or, or things. And you see what's going on right now in the Ukraine. How many references have there been to the World War II when Russia invaded Ukraine? Mm-hmm. And how many World War II references there still are that are, are going on with that conflict? And, 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 and that gives you kind of a barometer of, you know, of, of where history is, is that we can reflect on what's going on in the 21st century from, from something that happened in the 20th century. Well, back to what you were saying okay. earlier. Go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, like, I think Thucydides even <laughs> said things like that, where we can know what's going to happen based on what already did. Like it, it, it it's so to me, it's so simple. Yeah. And I and I agree with everything you just said because you're right. Um, you know, there's there's probably math is probably the only other subject in public schools that is hated worse than history. Right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it's just and it, it, and and I and I see it right. So I mean, I. <laughs> Jeff, your audio, you, your internet froze up on you. Go ahead, say it again. Uh, uh, sorry about that. I said I, I teach all grades in in high school, but this year I have students in my advisory who were eighth grade last year that that did not pass their history, their yeah. history test. So I've got to cover U.S. history again for them, and you know because they think it's just memorizing names and dates and places and treaties. Uh, it's not. And, and if you it want for them, make them make them memorize, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, and make them memorize all these things that they're not interested in. But on the other hand, teach them about World War II, but you know, relate it to them in some way. Where go home and there's somebody in your family who's connected to World War II. Go home tonight, ask Dad, you know, what Grandpa did in the war, and I guarantee you, based on the amount of people in the United States who were caught up in World War II, that everybody in in the United States has some sort of connection to World War II in their family, whether they know it or not. And you know, when you think history, you think textbook, thick textbook, boring. all these things and that's not what we do and at the museum you know we we, we've introduced virtual reality where you can put on vr goggles and we we you're you're standing on omaha beach and you're looking at the bunkers from the english channel and you're hearing the veterans talk about what it's like and it's a 360 degree experience we've never had one kid not say wow when they're standing on the shore of Omaha beach or in Bastogne or Pearl Harbor and everything. Cause I know from having five kids, how my kids learn and my kids, unlike me, when I was their age, 
these kids especially are learning visually and they want to be immersed in a situation. And when they take that Google set off, they're like, holy cow, what else you got? And for a 16 year old to do that tells me that we're on to something. So I think technology, as you know, Jeff, is, is an important way to teach and, and understand how kids are learning. I want to bring that up because when I was looking at some of your videos tonight, I came across your VR from Bastone. Mm. And very cool to be able to take your cell phone and look around. And I want to put this out there for the parents out there. Um, Google has had this out for a while. It's called Google Cardboard. And it's yeah. literally a kit you can – so, you know, maybe you're struggling financially right now, but, you you know, you have, everybody has smartphones. But, you know, Google makes a kit. It's called Google Cardboard. You order it. It comes with the lenses. It's literally a cardboard frame that holds the lenses. It's a affordable way to slide your phone in there, hold it up to your face, and get the experience of a high-end VR set but in an affordable format. So if people want to have their kids experience your videos that are in VR – they can do it in a way that they get the full experience for it. I mean, I'm looking right now. You can get a kit on eBay for $7.50. And yeah. So it's a very, very cool, very affordable way to bring that VR experience from your museum into someone's living room in their apartment, what have you, and their children can experience that same way. And Jeff has the advantage, too, of being a living historian mm-hmm. instead of just hitting his kids over the head with a Google Chromebooks and study these. He can bring in his helmets, his boots, mm-hmm. his canteens, and all that stuff. And yep. and he has the the you know the background of a living history presentation already in his back pocket. And so his students are so lucky that way. Yeah, it's how you teach, and you have to with something like history, you have to teach out of the box. And and it sounds like Jeff is doing that. I mean, you you'll get more from bringing a helmet in and letting the kids try a helmet on than you would from assigning them chapters one through three of, you know, the rise of whatever, you know, fascism in Italy or something like that. They put a helmet on and all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the kids who come in, the first thing I ask them, I go, what do you guys know about World War II? And and hands will go up and, and I'll say, how do you know about Omaha Beach? And they'll say, I play Call of Duty. And the teacher will roll their eyes And I will say, no, 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 this is great because the student has come into our museum. They know the word Normandy. They know the word um, towards Omaha Beach. They at least have that knowledge base. You know, now let me introduce you to a veteran who really landed on Omaha Beach and let's hear from him and, and what it's like. So. You know, again, kids are learning visually, and I don't look at that as 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 something that's necessarily wrong. Um, I, I look at it as a starting point, and and then where you go from there. Maybe you bring the helmet in, maybe you bring the canteen in, and then all of a sudden it's tactile for them. They can touch it, they can feel it. It's not in a book, and that's how you that's how you educate. That's have to, that's how you have to educate kids nowadays. So. I've said this so many times. You don't remember the first time you saw something under glass, but you'll remember the first time you picked it up, you felt it, how, how or you put it on or how heavy it was. That, like you said, once it becomes tactile, there's it's ingrained in our memory now, and that's very, very important. Absolutely, especially for the younger generations. And when it comes to getting those kids involved, that's why, like, when it comes to living history display, I know, Jeff, you got one or did you get two? The EE8 telephone is the perfect thing to use because not only is it World War II, but it's 
that's the same thing as my smartphone. This is a precursor. Yeah. And get out that spool of wire and you hook up the other one, you know, in the classroom over if you're out in the field, a couple of tents yeah. down. And they're always nervous to talk on it. And, I, and what we always do at our events is like, pick it up. When he says hello, order pizza. And they they, just, they think it's the funniest thing in the world, and you do it enough. The guy at the other end already has his order ready. And wants to know if it's free after you know. Don't get within thirty minutes. And a lot of them are afraid to talk on it. They're like, like no, just order pizza. And so yeah. we do yeah. that all the time. And you know, they're just their minds are blown by this is a telephone. This what's turned into that? Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. It's it's their world now is this is this smartphone. That's their whole world. I mean, their whole world is this thing right here. And if they can't, you know, get what they want on this, they don't know what to do because going to a book is so foreign for them. Um, that's almost like, you know, 19th century, you know, stuff, you know, it's like the 1800s or something like that. I, I have to go to a book. I can't just Google it or it's not on my phone. What do you mean? It's not an app. If I can't go, get to it on an app, then, you know. What am I going to do? I don't know anything about the Dewey Decimal System. I can't go to the library. <laughs> That's not even in their lexicon, the Dewey Decimal System. You know, That's it's funny. Just... I was taking my 16-year-old daughter over to a birthday party last weekend, and she was calling her friend to get directions. And as you guys know, kids use their cell phone on speakerphones. They do not hold them up to their head. And it's funny because my daughter has her on speakerphone. Her friend has her on speakerphone, but her friend also has two other people on speakerphone. And so it's just a giant, you know, feedback loop. And it's like, you know, if you just hold up to, but it's just, that's how they use the phone nowadays. And it's just, it's crazy how not only is it a completely different format, but holding it up to the head is just, what? Why would I do yeah. that? Everything is, is on speakerphone and it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when that whole thing started to change. I mean, I watch Band of Brothers on my phone. I mm -hmm. watch the Pacific on my phone. I watch Hacksaw Ridge on my phone. I watch Inglorious Bastards on my phone. Um, I watch all these things when I'm at the gym on my phone. You know, I mean, it's all coming to me on my phone. So um, that's what we're always thinking. We're, we're starting an app. We're going to have our own app that comes out where all of our films are going to be for free on an app and it's going to be That's like awesome. you can do it you can do it on your tv on your smart tv you can download it on your phone or whatever but we're trying to stay in touch with the technology and how kids are learning i've got a 17 year old at home i watch how she learns every single day and it's it's via that little phone and whether it, we agree with it or not that's that's the way it is and it's probably going to take another turn you know in a few years and it'll be something else but technology is not going to stop, so you have to adapt. It's adapt or die. So, um, you know, I love to read books. I don't like reading books on a Kindle. I want to read a book in my hand at Smell. night. Um, and that, you know, something I do before I go to bed. But that's old school, you know. It's like watching Matlock now or something <laughs> like that. You know, Love Boat or Fantasy Island. You know? I, I just want to say on, on, on Tubi, I've gone back and started watching One Day at a Time. <laughs> that show holds up. You, you, you laugh. The writing on that show was spectacular. And I'm 45 now. And I'm watching that. I'm like, first off, she was definitely the archetype for uh, Lois on Family Guy, but they don't give her any credit. I'm like, she's 35 and her boyfriend's 28. It's yeah. like the, the things they're going through. It's like, you, if this was the 2023 version, you guys would still be living at home with your parents. But this try, watch, try watching All in the Family again. We we, we started a, a binge watch of that, and I was like, <laughs> you know, the stuff that came out of Carol O'Connor's mouth. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and during that time in the 70s, that would never fly today. But 
you know, you can watch all those old programs on, on, you know, these, these channels and things like that. And, and, uh, but you know, the, 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 the documentary that still stands out to me and still stands up as the best of all time was the world at war. Yes. And, um, the world at war was done in the seventies with Sir Lawrence Olivier narrating. And a lot of the people were still alive in 1972, 1973. So you're interviewing guys who were in the SS, you're inter- interviewing Albert Speer, you're interviewing all these veterans who were still alive. And um, it's, it still holds up. I mean, that's what got me hooked on world war two was the world at war. And I'll watch it now in the Blu-ray version and I think to myself, man, oh, man, this is just the complete, you know, this is the complete World War II experience narrated by him. He was perfect. But all these veterans and survivors and the good, the bad, the ugly are, were all alive then and accessible. And um, it still holds up today. And uh, so I want to go back it, real quick because you sorry. said you, you kind of mass interviewed as many veterans as you could. Yeah because of obviously the timeline. And when you're yep. discussing that, my mind instantly went back to one of the cool things for me with Band of Brothers is the opening interview. Yeah. You got your, your subject in a black background with a light. Yep. And that seems to be kind of the format. And I was thinking the best thing about the back, the black background and the light is it prevents that interview from looking dated. Sometimes when mm-hmm. you're back and seeing these interviews or someone's sitting in their living room in 1984 and yeah. they, they'll have the white button up shirt. And if it was yeah. only, a, if it was a black background with the exception of the fuzz of the video, it wouldn't yeah. look so dated. But when you're seeing the curio cabinet from 1973 and plastic on the couch, yeah, it's like it, it dates that stuff. But when you have that subject just under a light black background, yeah. it doesn't matter if it was shot 20 years ago or yeah. three weeks ago with the minor exception of maybe a hairstyle or a sun or glasses style. Yeah. It really. It looks like he's in 1984 right now. If you look at his background. (laughs) Well, that's yeah. I'm living in 1985. I I need to get my journey t-shirt and uh, pay homage to Steve Perry at some point. But um, I love your logo, by the way. What's that? I love your logo for the World War II Foundation, by the way. Oh, you do? Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, just an old ca- combat photographer taking uh, taking video. And, uh, you know, we, that kind of sums up what we do. You know, you've got a guy in a helmet and he's 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 filming. Uh, he's a combat photographer. And um, but, you know, I, I agree with you in the black background. And what it also does, it emphasizes the face. Yes. And it emphasizes you don't you know, the background isn't busy or anything, but it really emphasizes the face and the emotion. And um, a lot of these times these guys are telling their stories and you can see it in their eyes. You can see like a Dick Winters reliving the moment of, you know, surviving Bastogne or how that changed everybody who survived Bastogne or, you know, every everything else. So we, we try when we can to use a, a, a black background because it just isolates the interviewee um, and, and, you know, brings out that emotion. But I always like to watch the eyes of the people that I interview because you can watch these guys reliving everything. They may not remember what they had for breakfast 
this morning, but they can tell you exactly what foxhole they were in in Bastogne and the Boyjack, you know, with Easy Company or whoever they're with. And, and it's just amazing their long term memories. It's all seared in their memory and they maybe have on, on the edge of dementia or maybe some are battling Alzheimer's. But when you get them talking about World War Two, it's like, boom, it all clicks in from some part of their brain and they're reliving that whole thing. And you can see it in their eyes and, and, and the clarity is there right down to the foxhole. And I find that amazing. I want to give Jeff the opportunity to light up here real quick. Back in 2021, you worked on a project called Elvis in the USS Arizona. Yes. Give us a little detail about that because Jeff is a huge Elvis fan. Is he really? Yes. Look, at him. he's already of, lighting up. A lot of people don't know that um, Elvis helped raise a big chunk of money for the USS Arizona Memorial. And um, he was going to film Blue Hawaii at the time. And Colonel Parker read an article in the newspaper saying that they were having trouble raising money, uh, the rest of the money needed to build the USS Arizona Memorial Pearl Harbor. So Colonel Parker asked Elvis if he would do a benefit concert at Block Arena at Pearl Harbor to help raise money and kind of uplift the whole PR end of, of, of making it, you know, known that they were struggling to raise money. So Elvis did this concert at Block Arena and it, it was his, really his first or second of official concert since he came out of the army. So he did this show and he, he joked during the show, he goes, I didn't remember half the lyrics, but the, but the crowd was screaming so much that it didn't matter. Um, so they raised about $60,000 and back then in 1960, you know, one uh, that was a lot of money. And um, it really ratcheted up the public awareness that they needed to raise the rest of the money. So um, so we did a film on that. And, and um, we interviewed people who went to the concert. We interviewed one girl who witnessed uh, as a five-year-old the attack on Pearl Harbor um, from her parents' house. And then in 19, you know, when the concert happened in the early sixties, she went to the Elvis concert. So not only did she witness Pearl Harbor, she went to the concert where Elvis was raising money for, um, the memorial. And Elvis would go back to the memorial every year. Sometimes there would be photos of it. And sometimes he would just go very quietly and, and pay his respects. Uh, Elvis was a big patriot. And, um, so a lot of people didn't know about, his role in, in helping. And those are the kinds of stories we like to tell, which are a little bit different, but maybe that'll hook somebody into wanting to go Google more about December 7th, 1941 or the USS Arizona. So it's a roundabout way of telling a story with the hope that you're a conduit for someone to go back and do a Google search about something related to um, either the event or the concert or, or Elvis. And they played it at Graceland, which was a huge um, you know, honor for us. Absolutely. And it's now, it's now playing on the Elvis channel. Elvis has his own channel on one of the, um, one of the networks now, and they, they run it on that as well. But it was just a, a story I always wanted to do because everybody knew about Elvis and, but nobody knew about his role in helping the, to get that money. And, you know, he'd go back to the memorial and lay a wreath and you'd see a tear coming out of his eye. So he really understood what it was all about. It wasn't just a show for him. It was, it was um, something much more than that. And um, so that really resonated with him. 
And that was a great film for us because Jim Nance narrated from CBS Sports and Kyle Chandler, who played the head coach in Friday Night Lights, um, read all the letters home from an Arizona crewman that we had in the film who is still entombed on the battleship today. He, he died on December 7th and they never found his body. So there are a lot of stories like that. You know, there are pretty amazing stories out there that haven't been told and, and, and some people take them to their graves, unfortunately. But one of the things we found, which is really interesting, is when we do an interview with a veteran, the family will always stop us on the way out of the house and say, never had an idea that dad landed, you know, on Omaha Beach. Uh, we didn't know anything about what he did till we went up in the attic after his death and we found the silver star or bronze star or distinguished service cross or something. Never talked about it for 70 years. And I, I always find that amazing. And um that they were able to, to just kind of put that part of their life, you know, away. And um, despite the fact, again, that they were involved in, in saving the world. And it's funny, they'll open up to me as a filmmaker, but they won't tell their son or daughter what they did because maybe, A, they weren't proud of it. Some of these guys did a lot of things that, you know, they would not normally do in civilian life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of killing going on. There was a lot of things going on. So I think when they got home from the war, they wanted to separate the war from their personal life. And they were a soldier in the war. That was one part of their life. Then they came home and were dad or husband or something else. And that was something that they never wanted to mix with who they were during the war. What projects you got coming up? Are you working on anything? Are you kind of just hanging low? No, we're not hanging. We never hang low. <laughs> we uh, we Keep just finished one, we, we just finished one on Bob Dole that's going to premiere this November. Um, we just jumped into one this week on Iwo Jima. Since we went back to Iwo Jima in March, we followed a, a fourth Marine Division veteran back to Iwo, um, as well as the son of a fifth Marine Division veteran whose dad never talked about you know the war. Um, so we've got this one coming up. Um, we're doing a film about uh, an SOE um, guy um, and then another one about the massacre at Orador Serglan in France, which is when the SS went in and killed 643 people in a village in, in central France um, just because because they were upset with local resistance activities and stuff. So they massacred the whole village um, when De Gaulle when De Gaulle became president of France. Um, he ordered that the village be left alone. So the village looks like it does today, like it did on July 10th, 1944. Um, there are pots on the stove. There wow. are singers machines. There are cars in front of people's you know, homes. So they left it totally alone as, as a memorial to the barbaric act that was uh, that happened there. So we're doing a film with Jeff Daniels, um, the actor on that one. So we're, we always have like five films going at once. That's why my hair is turning gray. Sure. Inside. Well, we'll definitely have you on when those projects come out to promote those. Um, yeah, no, this has been great. really has. Real quick, before we wrap up, we want to cover the topic everybody loves, and that is, Jeff, what you reading? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, I haven't had time to do much leisure reading. It's all been academic, as you, some of the listeners know. I'm in a Greece and Rome course, so I just finished up Homer's The Odyssey, and I'm in the middle of the story of Greece and Rome by Professor Spallworth and also Virgil's The Aeneid. Wow. Yeah. Heavy me, reading right now. Let, but. Me, let me pause you real quick. You just got done with the Odyssey, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When is that? That was, that was by Homer Simpson, you said? Right. Yes. Yeah, that Homer. <laughs> When's the last time you seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 
I don't know, like 20 years ago. Go back and watch <laughs> it because I watched it a few months back and I kind of went on a deep dive on it. The script of that is based off of Homer's The Odyssey. That's why John Goodman has an eye patch. He's playing the Cyclops. It's basically yeah. a rewritten 1930s version of that story. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know it either until I was watching the behind the scenes. That's why. That's exactly why John Goodman's character has the eye patch because he's playing the Cyclops. It's based. It's loosely based. It's kind of their rewritten version of Homer's The Odyssey. No, I yeah, I didn't know that either. I've only seen that movie once. Not once was enough. But maybe I'll go back. Uh, <laughs> but I did want to talk about two books that I've got that came into the collection here recently. Um, from a good friend of mine who, you know, I, there's not much to see if you're watching the video, but this is the original Guadalcanal diary from 1943. Yeah. The first book. Now I have a 1955 version and that was the first book uh, that I ever read on World War II. I was 12. Great great book. And I'm 40 now. So I've read, I don't know how many since then. Yeah. But then, then my good friend handed me 30 seconds. Yeah. Now here's the thing with this book. It it looks like it has never been cracked. Looks like you just got off Amazon. Yeah, the dust cover is is impeccable. This is also from nineteen forty three. Yeah. I have yeah. never seen a book from forty three that looked so pristine. It, like again, it's like it's never been opened. There's not any damage to the dust cover whatsoever. I feel bad for touching it. And <laughs> if my friend is listening, I know he is. And he knows how much I appreciate these two books coming into my library. It really, really means a lot. Two really good books I recommend, by the way. Yeah, we, we did a film on uh, Doolittle's Raiders. We were friends with Dick Cole, who was uh, Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot and was the last surviving Doolittle Raider. Um, he passed away a few years ago, well over 100. And, um, you know, the film's great. Love the film. Spencer Tracy. And, um, you know, it's uh, and Guadalcanal Diary. I, I love the film as well. You know, I, it's a little it's a little 1940s hokey in terms of, you know, um, it's, it, oh, wasn't, Richard it, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't saving Private Ryan in terms of showing the gruesomeness of the fight of it, like Alligator Creek and stuff. But it was right. one of my favorite reads, too. So both of those are. Tim, what you reading? I'm reading a book right now about uh, Churchill and the special operations executive. And that was Churchill's order to set Europe ablaze. And that was the group um, that um, he sent in to um, kind of get the French resistance organized and get the all these elements of the French resistance, the communists, everybody else organized to um, prevent um, the counterattacks after D-Day. So um, it's a really good book about how this special operations executive was founded. And, you know, it's, it's kind of Ian Fleming type stuff, um, very, very secret stuff. But we um, that's one of the films we're working on, a guy who was recruited, who lived in the United States and became one of the most famous, um, uh, joined one of the most, most famous SOE teams in Europe. And so we rechased his steps this summer in uh, in Paris and also in Limoges, France, and at Orador. So um, we're usually reading a book based on a film that we have upcoming. But I love to read. You know, I mean, these all these stories are just so fascinating. There's so many great World War II authors out there. Um, you know, guy, guys who just know how to get you hooked on a story. Is there a lot of full-length content out there about? I'm sure over in France there's probably a bunch, but in the American European market, is there any? Is there a lot of long-form content about the 
you know, the French resistance and their cont- contributions to the war effort? I mean, you see- there has been lately, there has been lately in, in Barnes and Noble, you'll, you'll go in and, and see a book about female um, resistance members during the war. Um, this, the film they're working on is based on a great book, which you all should read. It's called Scholars of Mayhem. And Scholars of Mayhem was written by the son of um, by Dan Guillet and his father, Jean-Claude Guillet, was in this SOE team. And um, it's, it's a, a book that probably should be a full length movie starring some young Hollywood actor. Uh, it's got every single element of intrigue and battle and you name it is in this book. And I really recommend Scholars of Mayhem to um, your your listeners out there and viewers. It's really, if you like a good book about spies and the French resistance and this whole other element of the British SOE getting involved, um, great read. Yeah, it looks like the full t- title is Scholars of Mayhem, My Father's Secret War in Nazi-Occupied France. Yep. So, as I just did, and as I do from time to time, a book will come up on this show, and because I am busy and have short-term memory, I have a computer in front of me, I just go look it up on Amazon, I toss it in a list, and at some point I'll order it. Yeah. Well, I was looking at my list about a week ago, and I don't even remember when this came up, how it came up, but in my list I had George P. Hunt's Coral Comes High. And yeah, so, that's a great book. And so I ordered it, and I got it like on Tuesday, it's in my truck. It's kind of a short read. I was kind of surprised on how thin it is, but I'm looking. That's that's what I I just finished uh, after all these months, um, four hours of fury. But I'm I'm going to read this. Coral comes high. Get back into the PTO mindset, especially now that it's two thousand degrees out here in Southwest Florida. <laughs> and then um, I'm not sure we're going to jump off after that, but it looks like a short read. But clearly, it, it, is. it must be a good book because. Anytime something somebody gets excited about on a podcast, I'll just pull up Amazon and just toss it in there. It's quicker than writing it down in this nonsense here and forgetting about it. Yeah, we've been uh, – there's a plaque to hunt on Peleliu at the point where the battle took place, and it's one of those kind of Alamo situations where there – I'm not going to give the book away or anything, but there's a nice plaque to him that they put into this coral outcropping of, of coral um, on Peleliu. And um, it's an incredible small – arms type of fight um small battle where extraordinary things were done in a really difficult situation on peleliu um but there are a lot of good books about peleliu that are out there as well and and guadalcanal and um so we've, we've been reading a lot about iwo jima and i brought home a bunch of sand from iwo jima and the one thing for those of you who've been to iwo jima you know as soon as you step on that beach you sink into the beach the volcanic sand you sink in. And the first thing I thought of is what if I were carrying 70 pounds of, you know, M1 Garand and grenades and mines and everything else, I, you know, 60 you millimeter talking, mortar plate. Yeah. And a mortar in a 60 <laughs> millimeter, 80 millimeter mortar or something, but just getting off the beach as, as people who were there filming, we were all exhausted. And I, that lends this like environmental aspect to the fight. And one of the things, and I, and I know Henry would agree with this you know, the fight in Europe was so different than the fight in the Pacific. Absolutely. And people always said, you know, how come the Pacific wasn't good, as good as Band of Brothers? And I always tell people, Band of Brothers and the Pacific were as different as the war in Europe and the war in the Pacific were. 
and and the Pacific focused on the environment and the enemy who didn't abide by the Geneva Convention and they, the Bushido Code and everything else, and they were going to kill you. And if, if they took you prisoner, you were probably going to die anyway. The brutality of the fight in the Pacific is what the Pacific did the best in that series. And um, so, you know, I, I recommend for those of you who say, oh, the Pacific wasn't as good as Band of Brothers. It wasn't supposed to be Band of Brothers. It was supposed to be something totally different than what was going on in Europe. And I, and I, and I think they succeeded in that. You have to watch it a couple of times to really appreciate that. But all the things that, you know, Henry's dad went through and um, 150 degree, 115 degrees on Peleliu and, and all the time he spent on Okinawa and the rain and the mud and the disease. And there weren't any women around. There wasn't any Calvados to drink. There weren't any you know, visits to Paris or anything like that. They, the, the Pacific War was just horrific and brutal. Yeah, I mean, if they were lucky, they got one of those giant bottles of sake that Robert Lecky so wonderfully described where you had to hold it in your knees and rock back like a baby because these bottles were so huge. I wish they would have showed that in the series. They just showed them drinking out of normal like champagne bottles instead of the huge ones where you had to rock back and forth. But They called it donkey piss in 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 the one scene. It goes, it tastes like donkey piss, but hey, you know, when when in Rome. You know, you do such a elegant job explaining things i've never thought about before but as you're explaining in your mind the differences it's like well it's almost in the title band of brothers is almost about the brotherhood the camaraderie of these airborne soldiers in the pacific is that it's about the pacific and everything that happened and the environment trying to kill you along with the japanese i mean it's almost in the names of those two two shows yeah, and they were, and they and they did that in the Pacific. You know, one of the when they showed Lucky coming home and the cab driver wouldn't mm-hmm. take money, yep. he said, "You know, I, I may have jumped into Normandy, but you know, you gyrenes, you know, you you, you didn't you have Paris. Yeah, you you didn't you didn't get anything." And and um, so I think when we go to the Pacific, when we see the conditions and we visit the these islands and we look at what it's what it's like to fight in the jungle, um, the brutality of the war in the Pacific was was just something that it's hard to wrap your head around. Jeff, about two weeks ago, you were bringing up how, and we've brought this up before, but you were talking about it, how important it is. If you're going to know about World War II, you probably should go back and read some World War I stuff, and you've just gone through some books. I don't know what it is, but over like the last three weeks, I've gotten really interested, and I've, I like blew through like two or, two or three documentaries on YouTube about the Great Depression. Mm. Are you familiar with the Bonus Army March, Jeff? No. Uh, What's that? I, I am, yeah. It's a lot of I context. Learned. I'm going to bring it up next week. but yeah, It's a good story. When I learned about the three gentlemen in charge of shutting down that march, I was surprised. And yeah. it's kind of like, yeah. oh, sometimes your heroes are villains. So yeah. tune in for next week. We're going to go a little bit 1937. We're going to talk about the Bonus Army March, what Big happened. Day. Couple of big names involved in shutting that whole thing down, and it was really kind of tragic. And uh, but you're right; there were some some big names who were involved. And in, you're thinking, post World War II, a lot of those World War One vets who were there have got to think, huh? Yeah, those aren't the three guys we remember. But we'll get into that next week. But I, yeah. I've really gotten interested in the whole whole time period of the the depression, how the the stock market obviously is one thing, but the bank run, how the bank run actually started is insane. <laughs> one guy basically started the bank run in New York City because he wanted yeah. to withdraw his funds. And then kind of like a modern-day person with a TikTok account, 
he didn't, he didn't get his money, so he went out on the street and started spreading rumors, and then yeah. everybody wanted their money, and then that's how the run started. But we'll get into that next week. Um, Jeff, you have anything yeah. you want to plug before we go? Uh, yeah, I'd like to let the listeners know I'm involved in a really cool project right now. Uh, can't talk a whole lot about it, but I can whet their appetite with I will finally know what it's like to research a story potentially for a, a big-named author, uh, just doing some work on seeing if we've got a good enough story here, and I, I think we do, um, about a B-17 pilot. Uh, who was with the 94th Bomb Group and uh, and killed in action uh, over Bremen on about his, we don't know exactly, 15th, 16th, 19th mission, possibly. A lot of, a lot of gray area there, but um, really neat story. There was an independent film director who just uh, has released a uh, documentary about this man, kind of a hero from the city of Memphis, I'm um, hoping to actually get the director of that film on, on the show here as well. Uh, so uh, working on that, uh, I actually just heard from Alex Kershaw just a few weeks ago. Uh, he sounds like he'd uh, like to be on our podcast as well. So looking forward to that. And then for those of you who, like me, live, eat, and breathe B-17s, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to announce that this Wednesday I will be a guest on Snafu Podcast. And Snafu Pod is just that. It is everything B-17. I've, I've uh followed the snafu pod for a few years now and of course he was one of the first ones to reach out to me when i was up there um at the dallas air show last year when we watched texas raiders fall from the sky with that p63 yeah um so looking forward to being on that show this coming wednesday uh 6 p.m central i think is when that's going to go on so um yeah onward and, and upward as always and and Tim, wow, what an honor to, to be able to, to hang out with you. It was, and spend great. Some time with it was you. great talking with you guys. No, it's just you guys run a great podcast and, and getting Alex on. Alex is a great guy. And there's so many great authors out there, John C. McManus and, and, and like I said, Adam Makos and, and, and other guys like that, that these guys are continuing, you know, the tradition of the Cornelius Ryans and the other people who came before them. And um, they're writing such amazing stories and, I know Alex is over in Europe right now, but he'd be a great guest. Yeah, Mako's yeah, just uh, moved to Southwest Florida. Had we've had both McManus and uh, Mako some. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Kershaw's kind of the, the logical next <laughs> next author. Yeah, he, he wrote one of the best uh, World War II books I've ever written, which was The Bedford Boys. And um, if, if your readers haven't, you know, listeners haven't read that book, uh, The Bedford Boys is one of the best um, personal stories um, about World War II and the effect it had on one town in Virginia. And um, Alex has written so many great you know, The Longest Winter and, and uh, The Few and so The Few. Oh, you. Yeah. 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 I mean, I Alex, Alex, yeah. He's got one coming out on Patton. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, um, and, jo and John McManus just did a whole great series on the Army in the Pacific yes. because the Army always gets overlooked in the Pacific because they always say, well, the Pacific was the Navy and the Marines, but the Army played a huge role in the Pacific mm -hmm. as well, um, despite some challenges of leadership. Yeah. Hey, Tim, where can people find you on the internet and um, your, your foundation, your website and all the goods? Yeah, we're, we're at, um, it's pretty easy. It's WWII, like World War II, WWII Foundation. 
www.ghostbusters.org, O-R-G, and all of our films stream live um, off of our website, so you can watch them on your phone or your iPad and stuff. And um, we also have links on there to Oculus TV and YouTube VR, where you can watch our VR stuff. And um, so, yeah, it's um, everything we do, we, we push out to the public for free because we want to make sure that these stories are, are seen and um, it's just part of our educational mission. So. And as always, if you're listening to this in your car, wherever you listen to, um, and you just head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, kind of like Tim, that's WWII, so WTSPWWII.com. And you will see his beautiful face on the cover page. Click on it. It'll take you to the page. We'll have links to all his content where you can find him, social media, his website, and you can download the episode. Or if we don't talk about this a whole lot. If you guys are listening to us on a podcast app such as um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anything that allows you to leave a review, please do so. Please leave a review because anytime you leave a review and some stars and some thumbs up, that platform will recommend our show to other people who listen to other historical podcasts. It's just a way to get the name out there. And also, while you're on the internet, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link, sign up, subscribe. It goes a long way to help what we're doing here. Um, We do have a Patreon giveaway coming up. Um, We're going to get into that in more detail next week. I know we keep threatening to do it, but Jeff and I will cover that next week in great detail. We're excited about that. And if you haven't done so, head over to YouTube.com. Look for D410 Media. Like, subscribe. You can watch all of our podcast stream live every Monday for myself Jeff Copsetta, and Mr. Tim Gray. We want to thank each and every one of you, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.